Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Greenfield, where real people connect. Hello and welcome back to the Matrix Greenpool podcast. I'm Hilmarie Hutchison and today I am so excited to welcome our wonderful guest of the week, David Harkin. David is a global leader in education innovation and the founder and CEO of 8 Billion Ideas. What an interesting name for a business. In addition to that, he is also a proud husband, father and philanthropist, passionate about family, charity and cricket. Well, let's jump right in. David, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely delighted to be here and really looking forward to it. To start us off, David, could you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Thank you. Firstly, as you just kindly introduced us, I am first and foremost a husband and a dad. Married to my wife, Jenny, have three boys at home. So I often say that I'm brilliantly busy and terrifically tired. They are seven, four and one in age. But the reason why I say that is because when you create an education company and you've got children as well, it gives you that extra added energy to go make sure that your company is not only impacting the world, but your own children in their learning. So that's number one. Number two, I'd say I'm a very passionate educationist. I think it's the best sector on the planet. Forgive those people outside of education listening today. I think it's the best sector on the planet because every single day in education, we have the opportunity to create memorable moments for students. And what I mean by that is moments where a child's view of the world can change in a positive way that they might uh, decide to aim a little bit higher to reach an aspiration or just to dream a little bit bigger. Those opportunities happen every day in school. Lastly, I am a CEO, which of 8 billion ideas. Sometimes I think the E stands for Chief Energy Officer, Chief Emotion officer, chief education officer, but I'm very proud of the CEO and it's our mission to give students the skills and belief to go change the world. So on paper, we're a B2B ed tech and services company, Marie, I think it's the easiest way to understand it, operating all over the world, working with students from fourth rating. Let's step a little bit further back. I believe you come from a corporate background. So what would you say was the pivotal moment that led you to leave the corporate world at a young age to become an entrepreneur? And how did this decision shape your journey? Yeah, I actually, I was a dyslexic historian and graduate from a university in England. And then I jumped into the tech sector working for IBM. I had six or seven years there and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But there was this little moment where I was beginning to feel a little bit corporate claustrophobic, where I felt like my brain was just buzzing with ideas. I was just kind of bouncing off the wall with new things that I wanted to get started on. I always had this passion for education and I took the opportunity to go on compressed hours, which were is actually an offering for back-to-work uh, mums who were coming back into the workforce in IBM at the time. Uh, many were going back to working maybe four days a week or three days a week. I took the opportunity to pitch and say, can I have it going on compressed hours? Because what I wanted to do was to free up a day's worth of time a week to start going into schools and start seeing what was happening in schools, how potentially I'd create a company that could support schools. That was a key pivotal moment for me because as soon as I got 20% time back in a work week, I could just jump into education. And and what the itch that I was looking at was the topic of entrepreneurship. I felt there was ways that schools could teach that topic in a slightly different way. And after I did my first few assemblies, Maria, which was directly to students, um, I knew that was it. It was exactly where I wanted to be. And then gradually that process of leaving the corporate world started. 
So the name, 8 Billion Ideas, that's rather intriguing. What's the story behind the name and how does it reflect the mission and philosophy of the organization? The story is about the fact that we live on this amazing planet. There's 8 billion people out there. Everybody's on a journey with indeed the skills and beliefs that they might have. Lots of people have ideas but don't know what to do with them. So we decided, kind of stumbled across the name, I think, by conversation really, and was like, that's going to stick. It really represents where we want to go. So the name was really important to us. It gives us that global interest, that appeal. It's also quite important as well, I think, when creating businesses, businesses like us, that your name is memorable. So we were very lucky on that part. And then I think the bigger piece of work was then a mission statement, which sometimes people can kind of come up with quite quickly or can maybe underplay how important it is. For us, it's actually been critical, which is about giving every student on the planet the skills and belief to change the world. So you've got your name as a business and your mission statement there, which people can really buy into. And it can really drive an organization externally as well as internally. So when people come and work for us now, Marie, it's they're drawn by a builder interested about the education industry. And when they look at our mission statement, they can get really behind it. So yeah, the name's been important for sure. Definitely has been really, really helpful. The mission statement, but then I think it's also your brand approach around it. So not just your service and your products, but everything else that you stand for as an organization. And we haven't underplayed how important that is. You mentioned that it is a B2B EdTech product or you're in the edtech space, can you unpack for our audience what 8 billion ideas is all about? Yeah, I'm just going to add an extension there. So we're B2B, which means we operate directly with schools or groups of schools internationally, edtech and services. So I'm a big believer, particularly in education, that the tech isn't enough, that you need that dash, that blend of services with an offering, with a product or a service. So we're making sure we're using the power of tech and the power of the person when we're engaging with students of the schools that we work with. That's a real key starting point. Underpinning this is the areas that we concentrate on. So we teach students about entrepreneurship, career education, skills for the future, performance and well-being. And through those five pillars, there's an extra three, which we're beginning to call invisible pillars of learning that come through our work, which is sustainability, tech and financial literacy. So typically, schools would have put this into the extracurriculum budget. So sitting alongside the core subjects such as English, maths and, and science, I don't like that phrase extra. This stuff isn't extra. To me, it's critical curriculum. It's so important that this stuff that we teach is being integrated and being put into the timetable, which is beginning to happen. So we have our mission, we have our areas of focus with the education, which we build delivered via via our platform and the team. And it looks very different in every school because we've got such variety in our educational focus. The way we deliver, we've had to keep flexibility there because time and budget are constant challenges for schools. So we have asynchronous offerings, we have virtual, hybrid and live offerings. And having that, what might seem a complicated blend, but actually having that portfolio there allows us to speak to a school, really understand what that principal wants to achieve and make some good recommendations about how to start. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I agree with you. These subjects should be core to what uh, children are taught. It should not be an extra, it should not be an optional. What age group are you targeting for this? We are currently four, so from the little ones up to 18, so the main years in school, but the ambition is to be zero to 100 plus, right? I think the areas that we're teaching are very relevant for students, preschool, post-school, whatever point of their career. You take the topic of entrepreneurship. I don't know about you, Marie, but I know in my education, I don't even think the word came up at all in my secondary school life. Maybe business studies obviously are focused then. That topic of entrepreneurship is just a very interesting field in itself. And with most economies having one 
one in five people being self-employed, you actually see that schools produce more entrepreneurs than any other profession. And I find that there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there, lots of people interested in business, fascinated, want to start a business as they move into the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, but don't necessarily know the next steps. And I found myself in lots of remarkable conversations teaching friends or peers or whoever it might be about some of the real basics that we're teaching seven, eight, nine-year-olds about entrepreneurship. So for me right now, we are focusing in the four to 18-year-old space, but the ambition is to extend what we're doing, not add any more pillars of learning. We like being in that critical curriculum space, but there's definitely support we can do in the post-18 market, as well as helping students as young as one, two, three. You mentioned earlier also that you are in many countries around the world. How many languages do you tackle? Is it just English or is this also available in other languages? So since we launched, I think it's fair to say that we have grown quite quickly into 20 different countries. Not fair to say that is the case. I often use the word say sometimes that we've stumbled in a way that principals around the world, those early innovators and adopters have heard about what we're doing. And whether they're in India, Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, London, wherever it might be, they're saying, can you come and support our school and help us? And the answer to us to those kind of requests has always been yes. From doing that, it means you broaden your capabilities and your depth as a business. Projects in the past have come up in Mandarin and English. More recently, we're seeing more of an interest to have that English and Arabic content. But what we're doing is we're staging it, Marie. We're, most of our work is delivered in English today, but we're having more and more inbound and more and more interesting conversations about just adding more depth to what we're doing. If we're working with a school or a group of schools, we just accelerate our product development if there's a particular language that they want to concentrate more on. Very good. Have you seen any or do you have any examples of specific instance where you've seen the impact of your platform on a student's life? Yeah, we see it all the time. You know, we're very blessed to work with, with children as young as four up until 18. And as a child gets older, you can see that we're having a direct impact on some of the decision they're making right now, whether or not it's examination choice, degree, starting a business. And we constantly get young people now emailing us after courses, sometimes six months, a year or two after they've had an engagement to either say thank you or to inform us that they started a business or a side hustle, Marie, that they're getting going, which they they just want to tell us about that the little hook and the little moment of 8 billion ideas was key to that. We obviously get all the CSAT, NPS scores from engagement straight away from students. And all the evidence is telling us is that children love what we do. They want to learn more about this. They, they seem to be really energized when they're talking about topics that they're fascinated of. And why wouldn't they be interested in these topics? Entrepreneurship, you know, so many teenagers out there are really, really interested in business, but they might not want to study business studies. They find they have to pick all choose. So when they have an opportunity to learn with us, we're lighting up a new passion. And then you just take another core area of our focus, which is career education. My days, it must be incredibly scary to be a teenager right now. When you're hearing about inflation, you're hearing about the ever-changing job market. We therefore try to flip it and get children excited about the next 10, 20 years of work, that they're not going to be limited by zip code anymore to opportunities. The work is critical. The impact we're seeing from every age group, I'd say the bit which is probably most pleasing is when we see children which have, you know, just actually left school, they're either celebrating programs they've been with us on LinkedIn or just reaching out because they've taken something away which has really changed their life or they're starting an initiative and we love hearing those stories. Yes, I'm so sure it must be so heartwarming to see the impact that this is having on the lives of young ones. Working with schools worldwide, including the UAE, how have cultural differences shaped your approach to education and what insights have you gained about the universal aspect 
aspects of fostering innovation and entrepreneurship in young minds? Yeah, very interesting question. I mean, my stance on this is that every child I've ever met across the world is a child, right? They're on a different journey. Every child has an amazing imagination, but they are on a different journey with the amount of skills or beliefs that they might have. I think despite so many cultural changes and cultural areas that you've got to be sensitive on, there is also a lot of similarities from our teenagers and children across the planet. So when we create our education, our, our philosophy is quite straightforward. It's to concentrate on what we know children really need. When we build a program, whether it be a course or a module, we start off with that in mind. And if you just take a particular lesson within a flow, such as a course, we personally believe that any lesson, about 80% of it is relevant for any child across the planet, wherever they might be, including taking into consideration any cultural sensitivity or cultural diversity. However, once you've got that building block of a lesson, you do have to have that variation to make sure that you've got the right role models, the right local financial terms, the, the right examples in those lessons as well. So if you build your business in the building block with the right ethos and the right education, those small changes you bring into your education as and when you enter a new market such as the UAE or wherever it might be across the planet. I've always found the UAE and incredibly innovative. You know, we see the speed of decision making five times quicker in the UAE compared to some of the markets globally. That's because you're at the forefront of entrepreneurship and innovation, not just in education, but in many other industries. So that's been quite interesting. Rather than having to adapt ourselves too much from a cultural point of view, what's been fascinating is that our stance on education has been globally very well received. And what's interesting is the fact that we begin to see how quick decisions get made globally. And that does give us a good steer on which economies and which industries and what part of the education sector are really going to be leading innovation in the years ahead. You have written a book, congratulations, by the way, The Ripple Effect. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, of course I can. Thank you very much for the nice plug. Going around the pandemic, this wasn't a pandemic book, but it was a pandemic book, but it wasn't spurred out of an idea of in the pandemic that I got time on my hands to write one. But just before it, I completed a, a TEDx talk around how I believe everybody can embrace a world-class mentality. And I had a nice gentleman in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, David, I love that talk. Where can I buy your book? And I said, it's not on the radar. I haven't thought about it. But then it kind of sparked something in me to go, actually, might be time to do it. So then I looked at some of the blogs and some of the articles that I'd written over the last five years. And I just printed them all out one day, many of them on LinkedIn or my personal website. And I realized that there was a theme in what I like to talk about. And obviously education was there, but I like to talk a lot about mentality and a lot about the small things can make a big difference. And I was sharing lots of little tips and I looked at the blogs and thought maybe there's a book here. And I was fascinated with you know, really the early thinking around that and about where I could take it. But alongside that, there was also a conversation I had with friends where I said, I know it sounds nuts, but sometimes I think I'm a pebble and every single day I'm being dropped into a pond and I've got two choices to make, make positive or indeed negative ripples like a pebble would do in a pond. And I said, surely that's the role of a leader to make sure every single day you're resetting, you're going again and going again and you're going again. And it's your choice to make positive or negative ripples. But actually, it's quite hard unless you've got some good habits underpinning the way that you operate and the way that you conduct yourself and quite frankly, live your life. So I had these two different things going on. And then that led to me just sitting down and going, right, I'm going to write a book. I wanted to call it The Ripple Effect, which is what it ended up being called. And the subtitle was about how surprisingly small changes in mindset can make big things happen. And then I broke it down into eight levels, different areas of 
small tips, small pieces of advice for what I described as the everyday passionate person. So when you write a book, sometimes you feel like you need to be an Olympian or you need to be from NASA or one of the top businesses in the world. I just wanted to make it really relatable to someone out there just trying their best and give a little bit of advice, which I've given people in the past and they've told me it's been useful, but now I've managed to document it. So it's called The Ripple Effect, available online. And if you have read it, please get in touch and just let us know if you've enjoyed it, hopefully. I love the message of the book that um, it, you need good habits and small changes can then have such a large impact. And this all from a question from somebody, where can I find your book? I love it. What was interesting about the journey and anybody out there who's any had hesitations of writing a book, I'd say just get on and do it because it's quite a healthy thing to do as well. It felt like personal therapy at times as well, Marie, just getting uh, my ideas out there. But what was interesting was my first draft of the book. I was trying to write like people like Matthew Saeed, who's written Black Box Thinking. I was trying to be a little bit too, maybe too intelligent, too scientific. And the editors just came back to me and said, Dave, just be a little bit more you. Don't try to write like somebody else. And it was a great piece of advice because then when I did the second version of the book, firstly, it was so much more quicker and it was incredibly enjoyable to write. So anybody out there, I just get going if there's a book inside of you and don't try to be anybody other than yourself when you write it. Yes, be true to your authentic self. Sound like you do and not like someone else. I think that's excellent advice. How do you apply the concept of the ripple effect in your personal and professional life? And maybe you can share an example where a seemingly small change in mindset led to a significant outcome. Now I've written the book, I've got to go take a lot of my own advice, which I've just chucked out there. Look, I believe in it, firstly, number one. And secondly, I think it's made me really, really, really conscious of my role as a leader. I find leadership now has got to be the hardest it's ever been in the history of humankind. And the reason why I say that is never before are leaders being judged constantly in a virtual and in a live manner and in a world where we're also communicating via platforms such as WhatsApp, email and Slack, which means at any given moment, something that you say or you do could be misunderstood or misread. And therefore, there's constant opportunities to potentially not necessarily slip up, but just for the world to judge you, which people do when they look at leaders. I think firstly, having that in the back of your mind that actually my responsibility is to bring the best version of myself into work every day, in fact, into life every day. And therefore, the most important thing I can do is look after my own attitude. And I like to talk about, and there's a chapter in the book about how do we bring a positive but relentless attitude day in, day out to our work. The only way I believe you can do that and the tips that I encourage people to consider is the way that you start and the way that you end your day, how you're warming up as an individual before you communicate with anybody at work and how you're calling down at night so you can go and sleep a little bit better. For you to bring that energy in every single day, you've got to consider that warm up and that cool down routine. Otherwise, there'll be a day that you just have that burnout. You bring too much negative energy into what you're doing and it's not acceptable, right? If you want to be a great leader, you can't bring four or five days out of five good energy and then you slip one or two days because people remember those days where sometimes you said something a little bit short or a little bit snappy. The thing that I'm concentrating the most on is really working on what I call a third dimension, which builds a little bit on the book. So where you're considering you've got your work life, you've got your home life, but you've also got to have something in there which is for you, which is different to both. And for me, that's been running over the last couple of years where I've had little running challenges, whatever it might be. But so I can really just switch off and concentrate on trying to be fit, but allow my mind to unwind 
minds as well. So you're not constantly thinking about the children or the business. So that third dimension is really important and it's how you build that into your week as well. So it's not just family and work. You've got family work and something else. And I'd encourage listeners to consider that because unless you have that third dimension to your life, often it will lead to burnout or slight imbalance in places you don't want it to be. So a couple of ideas there. Consider how you're starting, how you're ending your day. And then I'd also highly recommend that third dimension element, something a little bit selfish that you're doing for you needs to be in your working week. So not your working week, just needs to be in your life. I think that sort of leads me to another question because you mentioned at the start that you're a husband, father of three, an entrepreneur, you're actively involved in charity work and in sports. So is this where this three dimension comes in? Or how do you manage to balance these diverse roles? And what have you learned about achieving work-life balance? Yeah, look, very much a work in progress. I'm certainly not an expert at it and don't always get it right. It can be overwhelming at times. As anybody will know, having children, you know, waking you up in the middle of the night or constantly dad, 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 particularly when they're young. You've got to keep working on it. I'm, I am quite disciplined in terms of using my device, for example, at the weekends. I'm more and more now realizing there's sometimes little you can achieve by reading an email late on at night. You might as well put the phone away somewhere in the house that you don't access it to a point that you can access actually do something about that email. Otherwise, you're constantly reactive rather than being proactive as a leader. So the balance is hard. I think I'm doing okay (laughs) at the moment, but definitely the running and some of the charity work definitely brings a bit of perspective into the week and then gets a little bit more better balance. But look, I do believe there's times in your life as well, you do have to push and you do have to push hard. And and that's been a period for the last couple of years and no doubt the next couple of years, because we've got a very special organization on our hand, which can make a big difference in education. And I don't want to have any regrets Marie, at the end of it, I want to know that we did as much as we possibly can. But throughout that process, I've just got to make sure, look after my health, physical, mental, and those ones around me. So uh, my wife and my children, I want to make sure that they see we're enjoying growing the business, also making good time for them so they can grow as young people and as a family. I love that. And I think that's a great to put the phone away when there's nothing you can do about that email anyway. So why let it occupy space in your mind and keep you distracted? So rather put it away, be in the moment. And then when you know you can deal with it, then go ahead and look at what those emails are. So I don't have much energy late in the evenings now because from about 7 a.m. I'm pretty much on camera in meetings, whether internally, externally. I'm the CEO of 8 Billion Ideas pretty much by 7 a.m., if not earlier. And I just go full for it like all day. Normally my day is between like 7 and 11, 11.30 back to back. Then I get out for a run, little snack, and it goes again. So by the time I get home and then I see the kids to bed, sit down, you know, I, I've got a choice there. Do I keep looking at my emails? Do I keep just getting distracted? In relationships at home and also impact your sleep. So I'm trying to get into a new habit now of about eight o'clock at night. That's the last time I pick up and look at my phone, the set on a different device for the morning. And then I try and not pick up my phone again until 7am because then I can actively deal with anything which is being sat hitting at me. Otherwise, I'm dealing with it after eight or when the kids are getting up first thing in the morning. You're kind of in two places. You're not actually in one place dealing with one thing. That is a habit I'm beginning to see the benefits of. And as you say, it's a working in progress. It's not always easy to put these small habits in place, but once you do, the benefits do come in time. Definitely. Those were some really insightful responses and some good tips that you've shared with us. Now we move on to something a bit more lighthearted and fun, our version of a game show. So I'll ask you some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Go for it. Love this stuff. What's your go-to book that you recommend to everyone besides your own, of course? Stephen Johnson, Where Do Good Ideas Come From? I love it. 
If you could have one superpower for the day, what would it be? Oh, one superpower for the day. Oh, that sounds really bad. I would be irresistible. I would be utterly fearless for a day and just see what carnage I would cause. Oh, I love that. Very good. If you could travel anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? Sit on the beach. Good choice. Share a quick snapshot of a moment as a parent that made you exceptionally proud. My children decided one day that we were coming back from a swimming lesson and I was getting ready to do a charity marathon run. And my son was five at the time, my eldest son. He was asking me why I was doing it. And I was saying I was doing it to raise money for a friend's charity called African Promise. We started getting going. He couldn't understand why we couldn't send food from our home in London to these children. But what he did take from the conversation was I can raise money. He went into the toy room at home and he collected a variety of his toys and said, can I go sell these? we literally went out into the road that we lived on. He created a store and he raised 500 pounds in about three hours, which is the equivalent of 2,000, 2,500 dirhams at the end of our road. And it was just such a nice, heartwarming, very proud moment as a father. And that's kind of enlightened a real interest in charity for him, which you know I'm delighted with, obviously. Surely a proud moment. I want to know what kind of toys he has to go to raise 500 pounds. You know what, Marie? Yeah, it's just an amazing pricing strategy because it's teddy bear out there and somebody would ask him, how much is your teddy bear? And he would say, it's up to you. You're the customer. You can pay what you like. When you're five and you're saying that to adults, kind of guilt trips them in to giving a very expensive donation to buy the toys. So it was sales genius making his customers decide what the price point was of his toys. I love that strategy. Really smart. Very, very good. And it, it gives other people also the opportunity to donate and do something good and feel good about it. Surely a proud moment for you. What is one thing you do every day, no matter how busy you get? I sit and breathe before the day really begins. I kind of close my eyes now and I spend at least a minute just manifesting, thinking about how the day I want to unfold and just take that time to breathe. And I make sure that I also give my children a kiss before bed every night. If they're asleep, I make sure I do that or hopefully just get there before they go to bed. But that happens every day, those two things. Excellent. Thank you so much for playing along. That was easy enough. That was the end of our game show. Now, before we wrap up, uh, we would like to do our green pool moment. What was your green pool moment, the action or event that was the turning point for you or your career? The real turning point for my career, the first time I ever stood in front of a group of students doing an assembly, when I designed a 20-minute assembly to just try and work out how I could inspire a group of seven, eight, nine-year-olds at the time. Once I stood in front of them and designed an assembly, and this was a good number of years ago now, I realized that education was where I needed to be, not just now, but no doubt forever. So that was the first time that really, really changed my view on what I was going to do and what impacts I was going to make on the planet. Thank you so much for sharing your fantastic and inspiring story with me today. It's been a fantastic conversation and I'm so sure our audience is going to take a lot away from your experiences as well and from the tips that you've shared with us. Before we say goodbye, could you please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you and also put this in the show notes? Yeah, if you're interested about what we do, it's www.8billionideas.com or please connect with me personally at David J. Harkin, which is H-E-R-K-I-N on LinkedIn. What was Twitter, which was now X or, or Instagram? You can find us there if you just search David J. Harkin. And any questions, please reach out. I always do my best to come back to people as quickly as I can and just be wonderful to connect with more of your brilliant audience, Marie. So thank you very much for having me. It was lovely. Thank you so much again. I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.